Have you ever needed a supportive community in your journey to advance racial equity, stop and prevent oppression, and catalyze change in your life or your organization? Join us in our online community at intentionallyact.com. As James Baldwin wrote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. Join us online to confront the challenging questions and situations in your journey to advance racial equity as we build community to offer professional, personal, and organizational development, skills, and knowledge. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Atia Martin. Welcome to Intentionally Act Now, a podcast that supports the All Aces mission to activate consciousness, catalyze critical thinking, and transform capabilities that advance racial equity and build resilience within ourselves and our organizations. We feature a wide variety of leading experts in diversity, equity, and inclusion, conflict management, critical race theory, personal growth, and more. Many people have heard of or have read Debbie Irving's book, Waking Up White. In our world, changing consciousness around what we know and what we've learned is deeply foundational, but in truth is only a first step of a much longer process. To help us to get at what comes after someone embarks on changing their own consciousness, Dr. Esatia Martin and Debbie Irving reflect on their own racial equity journeys and where those journeys have taken them in this episode of Intentionally Act Live, formerly called All Aces On Air. Join us on IntentionallyAct.com to share your comments, questions, and thoughts on this episode. Good morning and welcome to the Labor Day edition of All Aces On Air. My name is Dr. Atia Martin. I'm the CEO and founder of All Aces, Inc. And I am very excited to have my good friend and colleague, Debbie Irving. One of the things that we usually do is we kind of do the intro to the guest that talks about their long, illustrious career. And what I would like to do is start from a place of just the fact that I know you as a human being and I appreciate you. Um, I remember I was the chief resilience officer. I, it, it was my probably my first month on the job and I had just finished reading your book, Waking Up White. And I was like, who is this woman? who wrote this book, revealing some of the inner thoughts, that kind of inner monologue um, in, in that many of us don't have insight into just in general for ourselves. But then on top of that, brought this level of honesty about what you were struggling with, right? And I was like, I need to know who this woman is. So I just reached out to, <laughs> as I do. Uh, and uh, and your uh, someone on from your team responded back, scheduled a call for us. We were on the call way longer than we were supposed to be, and um, it's just been a pleasure been a pleasure to know you ever since. Um, your willingness to learn and be open and grow, and your humility has really been a pleasure um, to um, be in. The presence of really, um, and it, it's it's part of the main ingredients that it takes to really do this work well, right? Mm-hmm. Without humility, it doesn't really work um, because this really is a learning journey, a growth journey, um, and so I just have always appreciated that about you, and I get to brag about that in front of everybody. <laughs> have you here? Um, and so I want to give you the chance to introduce yourself or introduce me um, and how I came across to you when we first met. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, I'll just say that level of honesty and humility, uh, that was a struggle. Like I didn't pop out. of. Actually, maybe I did come into the world with that, but it all got <laughs> slapped out of me in the mm-hmm. course of growing up in the world of whiteness. And so I had to reclaim it. I had to work hard. Um, uh, and I had some amazing coaches who pushed me to be increasingly honest. So uh, thank you for noticing that part of my, uh, my journey. Well, I, I think in that original email, you said you started out, I need to know you. <laughs> and I was like, I, there was so much to take in in that email, like chief resiliency officer. Like what? Like I didn't know 
I'd never heard that term. I didn't know Boston had that position. You need to know me. And, um, and I remember we had this amazing phone call. And then I think I remember going out, uh, coming over closer to where you live and having a meal together. And it was just like, I just felt like I was meeting a long lost sister. Mm. It was so great. And, you know, I find that in this work that for those of to, to be in this work, um, and doing it, there is a level of uh, authenticity and vulnerability and strength mm-hmm. because those things come together. And um, and so I often find like, wow, like I'm meeting people on my own planet. Like I finally feel like I'm having the kind of relationships that I've wanted my whole life mm. and I didn't know how to have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm Find because you can't have one of those relationships on your own. So um, I I just love the relationships that that I have made and I'm making in this work. And you are you know right there. I have just loved and do love knowing you. And you know, and you bring a perspective that I will never have. You know, as a black woman. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I love our conversations, how so many times I'll think I've thought something through and you'll say, well, actually, and, <laughs> and then comes the weaving, the weaving of our narratives. Yes, yes. It, it, it's, um, and it's funny because you started to go into, in your description, um, you started to talk about the work, right? And one of the things I find fascinating is we use that term a lot. Folks throw it around. People need to do the work. White people need to do the work, the work, the work, the work. And I rarely hear people describe what that actually is. What is the work (laughs) we are talking about? Um, Because, uh, you know, we, the other, probably about, three months ago, we put together this spectrum. So we already had a diversity, inclusion, and equity transformation or diet um, framework. And we it was focused on organizations. And then we, re- we realized we do a lot around organizational development and personal and professional development when we're working with organizations and that we needed a spectrum for people. And one of the things that like jumps out in my mind when we put that spectrum together was one of the categories that I see most often um, uh, that we created is someone who knows the language, like they Mm. intellectually know the definitions, right? They know how to use the words, but they don't have a deeper understanding. They haven't internalized it. And so they think that advancing racial equity is about policing language. and so, you know, with that, that's the first thought that popped in my head. And so for you, when you think about the work, what is the work that everyone is talking about we should be doing to address systemic structural racism? Well, if we think of, of a family, if we're a family, maybe the human family, the Massachusetts family, the United States family, um, you know, how are we dysfunctional and how, how do I contribute to that dysfunction and where did that dysfunction come from? So I have to figure out what is my role in this. And so I think then that means that we have to understand, um, I think you can't do the work without understanding the history, the historical roots of this mm-hmm. and, and the culture that has been required to hold in place a racial caste system, a hierarchical culture, uh, a culture that demands compliance. You know, if you are above in the hierarchy, you get to demand compliance of people who are beneath you in either the structural hierarchy of an organization or the social hierarchy, according to race, gender, class, et cetera. And so doing the work um, includes understanding, you know, not just the history, answer the analysis of how these all these hierarchies work it, it it requires understanding the social dynamics that all that context creates so that an example is that i um 
as a, as a white person in the hierarchy was taught to not see or talk about race, for instance, mm-hmm. which means that my contribution is I, if you don't talk about something, you become incredibly, you stay ignorant about it. You don't understand it. And, um, and if you're higher in the social hierarchy, if, if I'm not talking about it, there's no room for, for people in the racial caste system, quote unquote, below me you know, using caste language mm-hmm. to talk, because if I can't talk about it and you and I are colleagues, you can't talk about it because I don't know how to talk about it because something you say might, might upset me. And, but there's this compliance now we're not supposed to talk about it. That's rude. That's racist. And so I think understanding how I can maybe still contribute to those um, dynamics by silencing. Do I silence you because I won't talk about it? Do I silence you because I talk on and on and on, which I'm kind of doing right now and, you know, crowd out. And, and everybody has their own social location in that bigger context. So we all have work to do owning my piece of the work, not being afraid to own my piece of the work. So that actually brings up uh, an interesting point that brings me back to um, this weekend. So I was doing a lot of writing this weekend. And part of doing a lot of writing is also doing a lot of reading, revisiting readings that we've flagged and marked to come back to. And one of the ones that jumped out at me was um, I went back to Leon Festinger's, um, uh, his paper he wrote on um, cognitive dissonance, but also his book he wrote before um, the paper, the full paper, the, this, that particular paper came out on a theory of cognitive dissonance. Um, and what, what you describe as kind of the work that we need to do is basically a lot of the language that um, he used to discuss um, how cognitive dissonance works, right? That we have these ideas about who we are and how we're supposed to be in the world. We have these ideas and we are comfortable, right? Because these ideas flow and we um, are, are navigating in the world, through the world in a way where we generally tend to avoid anything that communicates something different to us about who we are in the world and what we believe. Um, and that there's actually um, this pattern that emerges that it is not, we, we will not seek out information that's different from what we believe unless we have such a huge magnitude of dissonance that we're, we, it's almost like we have to. It's just mm. too comfortable that we're sitting in that much um, disconnect between who we think we are and what we thought we believed and what we have just been exposed to. Um, and I bring that up because <clears throat> it's the pattern that I see. Um, you know, uh, Robin D'Angelo um, wrote her paper and then later her book, White Fragility. And it was very revolutionary for a lot of folks. And really it's because it gave us language to talk about a phenomenon and as I, I revisited her paper too, as I was going through my stuff, and what I realized, the pattern of how she lays out the way um, that white people react to being confronted with, with the existence of racism and that they too could be a part of it um, is actually aligned with how people react to cognitive dissonance, right? Like that's what we're talking about. And it's within the context of race and racism, right? So, so Leon was not thinking about race and racism. Although there's a little part of his book where he actually does talk about, um, you know, be exposure to different groups and how um, sometimes behavior, being forced to behave in certain ways will influence how we think about things. However, that was not his intention of writing the book. Um, and so um, as we think about the work and the challenges of doing the work, and as we think about um, what President Trump um, issued uh, at the end of last week um, this idea that we should not be doing these trainings on, um, they refer to them as uh, 
racial sensitivity trainings, which I don't think anyone calls it that anymore, but you know, whatever, um, or that's what we're doing. Um, and really there was this, this intense focus on, you know, confronting white people with the idea that they're part of a structure of racism and that they contribute to it remaining in uh, growing and evolving in this society. Um, the other thing they said they don't want people to learn about is critical race theory. And so I, I, you shared that article with me and then my team shared it with me as well, um, uh, folks from Team All Aces. And, um, and I thought, you know what, let's talk about it, right? What was your initial reaction when you read that article? Uh, <laughs> well, first of all, the word un-American is in there, which harkens back to McCarthyism. So uh, that was a bit of uh, sort of like, wow, okay. And it, so, and it wasn't surprising coming from um, this president. And yet, I guess what worries, I immediately thought, okay, this is going to give an out to all of the leaders um, and the people in this country who have thought, oh, this is just too sensitive a topic. You know, now it's going to say, look, we can't do this until this guy's out of office or, or they're going to just buy his idea that, um, that it's un-American. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the other thing that was in there that was just, it just, it just blows me away when, um, when people say America doesn't have racist roots. Talk about cognitive dissonance. I would like to ask somebody who says that, you know, what's your evidence? What is your evidence? Are you going to point to the constitution are you going to, what was going on on the ground though in the days of the constitution? Mm -hmm. um, how, how do you not call um, invading an, an entire continent where people had been successfully, happily thriving for thousands of years and now you call it a discovery? How do you not call that racism? Um, because the justification was that people were subhuman. They were savages. Mm -hmm. now, how, how do you, how do you, characterize the enslavement of Africans to come over here for free labor. Labor Day, speaking of Labor Day, we don't talk enough about the free labor that built this country on Labor Day. So let's bring that into the space. Yes. And, and you know, it's funny what, um, you know, the point you just made brings us to an important place, which is, it sounds like most people don't really understand what racism is because yeah. it if I think racism is about bad apples and people wearing KKK hoods, then my perspective on how racism works and what we should do about it is super narrow, mm -hmm. right? It's super restricted and limited. And so of course the founding of our country wasn't about that, right? So of course we couldn't have been doing those things back then. Um, but, and then you layer on top of something you said earlier, you talked about the power of history and us knowing history. And, and the challenge with that is most of us don't know the full context of history, right? We don't learn it in school because we only learn the comfortable stuff. So when, um, when you bring all of those pieces together, you bring together the fact that we don't understand what racism is or how it works. We don't understand that it's not just harmful to people of color, that it's harmful to white people too. We don't understand the historical context of how we even got here, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I don't understand the long history of policies, practices, culture, decisions, conscious decisions that we made as a society that were um, exclusive to people of color, exclusive to Native Americans, exclusive to African-Americans, exclusive to immig other immigrants of color. So exclusive, right? Um, or it, let me reframe, exclusive to immigrants of color mm -hmm. um, or immigrants who were not seen as white because that evolved over time. Or couldn't become white exactly. over time. Mm -hmm. um, that we 
when we look at today, it's really hard to understand that it's not just individual choices that landed people of color in the situation that we're in right now, right? Mm -hmm. It's not purely individual behavior and it's an oversimplification of how the world actually works. So all of that said, it brings me to this place of, well, with that, in absence of knowing those things, right, it makes sense that people would have certain kinds of defenses and responses. And in fact, they're predictable, right? There's nothing anyone is saying in defense of this position about, um, you know, America does not have its roots in uh, racism um, and in creating these hierarchies to use your, your language and to use it, um, Isabel, what's her last name? Isabel Wilkerson. Wilkerson, thank you. It, well, Isabel Wilkerson's language, kind of the caste system of America, um, you know, we're here now, <laughs> we've created this. Um, and so and now you have the federal government saying, we don't want, uh, or, or let me reframe, we have the president of the United States saying, we don't want the federal government to be learning these things. If you could have a conversation with President Trump right now, I know this is scary. I'm going into weird territory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I fantasized about it many times, Dr. Martin. Oh, well then, well then, then go. <laughs> tell, tell, tell me what was the result of your fantasy? <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> a lot of, uh, um, I think that I would want to ask questions. Okay, like yeah. what? Well, tell me more. Tell me more about your decision to um, withdraw any support for uh, racial racial sensitivity training in the federal government. Um, and I'm, and the answer would be, well, it's ridiculous. There's no racism. We're just causing problems, and um, it doesn't exist. So it's a waste of time. White privilege doesn't exist. It's a waste of time. He did call out white privilege specifically, mm -hmm. and. Um, and I think I would just say, what is your evidence? You know, what is what is your evidence that we're not a racist country? Just as I, you know, I stated earlier, and I don't think I'd get very far. I, I don't think so. I think there's actually. This is going to sound like I'm trying to get out of this question. And yeah, I think there are um, some dots to connect that are really important in what you've already talked about. One of them is cognitive dissonance, and the other is oversimplification. Mm -hmm. Because what you're talking about is uh, a pa patterns that we see, uh, certainly of white people, um, and though it's not limited to just white people, but but predominantly white people will oversimplify what race means. It's mm -hmm. just about interpersonal. It's just I'm a good or bad person. Mm -hmm. It's uh, just this or that thing I have or haven't done, and and that is because the the dominant culture of whiteness that holds in place this caste system encourages simplicity. It, it, it gives us choices of you're a good or bad person. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm gonna bring Christianity and Christianity says you're going to heaven or hell. There are all these ways, you know, you're acting in an appropriate or an inappropriate way. So we, um, the English language and, uh, and the Christian culture brings some, uh, you know, I think um, contribute to ideas um, that the world is a simple place. And if I just do this or that, I'm right or wrong, I'm good or bad. When in fact, mm -hmm. life is so much more complicated than that. And I think mm -hmm. about what I was taught in schools from you know preschool to being a history major um, at a great college, great, you know, a, a prestigious college, um, that I was not taught history that contradicted the other history I was learning. So I was taught history as if it was real and right. I wasn't asked to grapple with complicated uh, contrasting narratives, for instance. And so both the content of what I learned was simple and the way I was asked to digest it was simple. I wasn't asked to grapple. So um, that really takes a toll on my ability to grapple on my ability to understand systems. Mm -hmm. So it's so serendipitous that you bring this up because I feel <laughs> like the writing and reading I was doing this weekend was almost um, 
preparing me for this conversation mm. because this this idea of um, oversimplification of um, of objectivity as a as something that's universal that you can be universally objective mm-hmm. um, or rational. Um, even though we don't have the, that's not our default way of being as human beings. We're not rational beings, uh, but we, we delude ourselves into believing we are. Um, there was a whole section um, that I was looking at that really, I had never connected the dots before this weekend explicitly. And it's, I was looking at, there's a book called Feeling Good. Um, and it's a, um, it's about cognitive behavioral therapy and how to do it for ourselves. And it's part of my search, um, my journey to help um, manage kind of the inner monologues that we have. Mm. So cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the one of the practices that anyone can do um, in terms of being able to hear the um, the the narratives that we tell ourselves that are false, right, and that get in the way of our progress and our success. And there's a whole series of cognitive distortions that's listed in that book that are associated with depression. And the list of cognitive distortions includes oversimplification. Oh, wow. It, actually, I'm going to grab it. You right. know, I'm sitting on my hands because all I want to do is like Google this book. <laughs> Any book you've ever recommended to me is like, that's what I needed. Yeah, let's see. Hmm. So the book is. So we're not we're not the only ones thinking this because uh, somebody listening in on the call is saying they were just having a version of this. Let's see. There we go. Yesterday, yeah. Feeling good, the new mood therapy. So Dr. David Burns and and Dr. Um are the two kind of godfathers of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, And so in David Byrne's book, he wrote his book for regular people like us, right? Who are just like, I just want to learn how to be better and do better in my life. And I'm struggling to figure out how the heck to do that. And so his his list of cognitive distortions that contribute to depression are all or nothing thinking, You see things in black and white categories. If your performance falls short or perfect, you see yourself as a total failure. Okay. Perfectionism, another cornerstone of the white culture. Exactly. Yeah. Overgeneralization. You see a single negative event as a never ending pattern of defeat. Oh, wow. Mental filter. You pick out a single negative detail and dwell on it exclusively so that your vision of all reality becomes darkened, like the drop of ink that colors the entire beaker of water. Oh my God, I so know that one. So in the other one, um, other ones I'll just call out, some of them are versions of overgeneralization. Labeling and mislabeling, it's an extreme form of overgeneralization. Instead of describing your error, you attach a negative label to yourself. I'm a loser. When someone else's behavior rubs you the wrong way, you attach a negative label to them. He's a goddamn louse. Mislabeling involves describing an event with language that is highly colored and emotionally loaded. So when I was reading through this, I was like, these are all the things that are associated with cognitive distortions that lead to depression. In other words, thinking that is unhealthy for us in our own human development. Then I was looking at, um, then I went really super nerdy. Y'all, I'm, I'm getting nerdy here. The, oh, the book is, sorry, Paloma. The book is Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy. I um, mean, it's by Dr. David Burns. It's an oldie but goodie. And the other uh, nerdy rabbit hole I went down was looking back at, um, I went back to basics, right? I went back to Freud. And he was talking about the id, the ego, and the superego, right? Like we all kind of had some exposure to this as we were going mm-hmm. through. And I really got stuck on what, how, what he describes as weak ego. And weak ego has a similar pattern. 
of, of behavior, right? And so I'm going to grab that. And what I want to do is while I'm doing that, I want you to talk a bit about just your initial reaction to what I just shared with you. Yeah. Well, I personally need that book. Um, I related to all of those. I, I pictured them as bullet points. Um, the thing that's so interesting, that book was written for individuals and characterizing um, you know, uh, patterns that can entrap us in what I would call a non-growth state, you know, kind of send us into vicious cycles that hold us in place or, or drag us down into a negative place. Yeah. Um, and yet anytime we're talking about human beings, what is true about one human is true about, um, a you can also apply that thinking to, a, you know, two people or groups of people or entire, you know, states or countries. And so, you know, you could apply that list. I would, you know, the four eyes of oppression, mm -hmm. which Absolutely. I love. Okay. Intra for people who don't know the um, intrapersonal, what's going on inside me. Um, interpersonal, what goes on between two people or groups. Uh, institutional, how institutions are set up in order to reproduce some of these uh, thoughts and behaviors. Mm -hmm. And then ideological is the fourth eye. And that is the greater context of ideas that all of this sits in. Sort of the mm -hmm. philo mm -hmm. philosophy that humans are in a caste system would be an example of that. I think it would be really cool, Dr. Martin, to take that list that you just made and run it through the four eyes. You know, how does it show up in intra? Because you're just describing how it shows up intra personally. Yes. How, how does that look at each of the levels of the four eyes would be a really interesting exercise slash handout. Yes. So actually it's funny because um, I'm revealing a lot here, y'all. <laughs> so Tell working, me you've already done that. I'm working on a book. Mm. <laughs> um, and we've talked about this before and I had made a bunch of progress and then I paused because of coronavirus, the reason for everything, but I refuse to let coronavirus get in the way of what I already started. So that's actually one of the um, ways I was thinking about how do you help, how do you help us? How do we help each other better understand these issues? Um, and so the idea of, well, how do um, the way that these cognitive distortions, which aren't just limited to how uh, David Burns lays it out. You'll also see it if you do, if you look up um, logical fallacies, you'll see a similar, um, you'll see a similar um, list of, of ways of thinking, the flawed ways of thinking about the world that are just not true, that people use in arguments, that mm. people use in discussions. Um, and so, um, so, so what David Burns pulled out really is part of a larger um, uh, pattern of flawed thinking that is identified on the critical thinking side of the house. So he's looking at it from the psychological perspective, but in the critical thinking research, it's very clear. They're like, yeah, you should never <laughs> take these approaches for complicated things. And life is complicated, especially people. Now, I promised that I would come back to this idea of the ego. And how Freud talked about weak ego versus strong ego, because it has some parallels here. And I I forgot I wrote this up in one of my old notebooks, which is why it's great to, to journal, y'all. Critical reflection is, is key. Um, and so one of them was um, impulsive or immediate behavior. These are signs of a weak ego. And, and just to be clear, right, you know, the ego... Um, once it's developed, can evolve over life over the our lifetime. It's just like the brain, right? Um, it's part of kind of all of that we are, and it's heavily influenced by external um, forces um, if we let it. The second one, um, second pattern is a sense of inferiority or an inferiority complex, a fragile sense of identity, unstable emotionality excessive vulnerability. Weak ego underlies an inflated sense of self, which is actually also associated with grandiosity and superiority complex. Why is this important? Because then when you compare it to a strong ego, it gets to more healthy behavior, right? More healthy ways of thinking and being that we actually have insight 
um, we have um, insight into ourselves and how we work and why we do what we do. And we have insight into how the external world works, how it really works. And we have a, a, a pattern where we're constantly doing the iron sharpening iron it takes in order to stay um, focused on reality. Mm -hmm. That we allow for maintenance of schedules and plans and otherwise that we're able to to, to have use our executive functioning in order to plan over the long term, right? That we can think outside of today, tomorrow, next, the weekend, next month. Um, and this is my language, really decision-making, that we have the ability to, um, to follow our own goals and resolves while we're choosing decisively among alternatives, right? That we're actually using a process to think through decisions. <laughs> And I'm hearing intention, like a strong ego, intention. right? Allows for intention as opposed and to exactly. be responsive instead of reactive. Exactly. And here's my favorite part. The person of strong ego can also resist immediate environmental and social pressure while contemplating and choosing an appropriate course. Mm. And strong ego is further characterizing the person who is not overwhelmed by their drives. And in psychological terms, drives refer to kind of the immediate emotions, the immediate mm -hmm. feelings and situations and pressures that we are under, that that's not the thing that drives us. So um, I really, um, I get excited about the nerdy stuff. Sorry, y'all. So <laughs> another, well, another connection to make now, um, the idea of feeling good, you've probably already made this, which is why you went to the ego, but I'm making this connection the level, if there's an irony in that feeling good um, um, book and that list you read, because the reason people don't complicate, don't want to complicate, uh, don't want to get critical, um, and I will say whiteness has conditioned us to not want to, especially not want to go there, is because there's this sense that it's going to be too hard, it's not going to feel good. Mm-hmm. And yet the real good feeling is on the other side of that. Exactly. Because you have to get through that. You have to, you know, you can't, um, to get, uh, to work through cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. You have to, that's that grappling piece. And it takes intention. It, yeah. takes, it takes not fleeing the second it gets hard. Exactly. And it's how you get to really know who you are. Yeah. Right? Which is an important part of being able to do this work well. Because it's easy to be to, yeah. to to have a distorted version of how we actually are existing and navigating in the world, right? Yeah. Because of how we're wired, like our brain wants to tell us, wants to make us feel good, not to be overused the term. Mm -hmm. but our brain wants us to like feel good about ourselves, and 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 so it tells us things, or it creates uh, uh, situations and framings of the world that are actually um, clearly distortions if we're paying attention. But if you never pay attention, you're just rolling through the world. And, and what it does is it makes us think and feel like we're perfect. And none of us is perfect, right? But we immediately get defensive when we get called out on things. So when we talk about white fragility, I want to be explicit. Um, it to your point, you you kind of hit this, and I want to be explicit about this, is that it's not just white people that struggle with these issues, right? That all of us have been infected with these ideas about who white people are, who people of color are, how we're supposed to be in the world, how we should, what we should expect from each other, um, and all of those, um, that whole infection that all of us has, mm -hmm. we all have. Um, actually influences everything because we're constantly bombarded with them. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, we got exposed to it that one time. Every day we are reminded white people are supposed to be this way and treated this way and people of color are supposed to be this way, especially black people, right? And so this, this, um, those, how those ideas per permeate through all of us shows up in different ways. Right. So for me as a black woman, I had to unlearn a lot of unhealthy behaviors. Right. So, you know, you're constantly encouraged to be more professional. Right. And someone else has defined that for us, which really is about being getting closer to whiteness. Um, 
And so that means like you need to have straight hair. It means you need to talk a certain way. It means that, you know, you're supposed to have all the answers, right? So kind of a spinoff of kind of perfectionism. Perfectionism. Right, exactly. Um, that you, you when you show up, you're supposed to take command of the room. Right? You know, like all of these things that um, we're, we're taught that are, that are under the guise of being professional or being good or successful really are um, kind of the, 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 the kind of addiction to whiteness. Right. Um, and, and in that journey and over the course, I know for, I'll speak for myself as a black woman, I had to figure out for myself, right. That yes, white people had, have been, have been socialized to be a certain way. And so have I, Mm -hmm. I too have been socialized to think and believe certain things. Um, that are actually not helpful to me and my personal growth and development, not helpful for my community, not helpful really for any of us. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so it's like the 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 other side of a double-sided coin where, you know, for whiteness as it has been taught to white people and then what's expected from you, and then whiteness as it has been taught to us as people of color and what's expected from us and what we all have to give up to buy into it. Mm-hmm. Right? I have to give up any pride or joy I have in being a black woman, right? In order to buy into whiteness. You can't bring that here. Those politics, right? My identity gets diminished to politics. Um, You can't show up and care about other people. We don't do that here. You can't show up with your emotions. You leave that at the door, right? So all of these these things that I had to get up out of me and to be able to really show up in spaces is who I am. Mm-hmm. In, in that, yes, I'm a black woman. I'm also a nerd. I'm also a photographer. I'm also a mom. I'm also I have I have all of these different parts of me that aren't limited to um, social categories and even roles or or things mm-hmm. like that. But like I have this whole breadth of who I am that I have cultivated and took time to figure out for myself um, that if I had have continued to buy into whiteness and in, in the ways that I had, and I, and I probably wasn't even that extreme of a case because I had been reading um, uh, books my, since I was a kid about racism and the stuff and like all that stuff. Like I, you know, so in some ways I wasn't even that extreme, but I had a lot of work to do in order once I started to see that pattern of behavior mm-hmm. that was showing up, right? Because um, a lot had been done to you. A lot had been done to me for me. As it was to all of us, to me. Exactly. And and so there's a journey and there's a great metaphor about kind of Americans um, uh kind of wanting to skip from act one, like if we're using a play as an analogy, <clears throat> metaphor, whatever, sorry. Um, but if we're saying that, you know, it's like, um, more like a simile now, um, that it's like, um, you know, act one, right, which is the setup, character development, like you get to know what's who these people are. And then Act two is supposed to be the struggle, right? It's like exactly what you were talking about. The the wrestling of the wrestling with um, the the ideas and the who who am I and what am I gonna do and all these things. And then act three is the resolution, right? Where we okay, we we've landed in a place where this is where we're who we're gonna be, this is the decisions that we ended up making, and I may might have won or lost, but I did something. Um, and so for us in this journey of how do we advance racial equity for ourselves and our own lives as individuals, but also when we show up in institutions and organizations, that act too, we can't skip it. And that's what everyone's trying to do. Organizations are trying to skip it. Well, we just want to, we just want to have a conversation. And then by virtue of having a conversation, we automatically jump to resolution. You know, you have to struggle to figure out who you are collectively, what you believe in, how you're going to hold each other accountable to what you believe in, the whole range, the whole range of um, the journey. It's hard, but it's also an important part of our development and 
in, in human beings. And that's what racism and oppression takes away from us, right? It mm-hmm. takes away our ability to not just decide for ourselves who we want to be. Sometimes we don't even realize that mm-hmm. who we are has been molded and shaped by all of these external forces and pressures. And so in absence of that, we now we we will literally we can literally be born and leave this earth and not have had that journey of really knowing getting to know who we really are mm-hmm. outside of what the the um, limited narrow social expectations that have been placed on us are. So that said, um, I wanted to come back to you and just be quiet for a moment because I've taken up a lot of space just then. Just taking it in. Yeah, taking it in and thinking um, the whole time you were talking, um, it was good space you were taken up. I mean, for I, I, my whole, my mind was just, and I bet everybody on this call's minds were going to. For, it's so interesting. One of the things that came up for me is um, uh, Bruce, my husband, and I went to marriage counseling at, you know, like four times over the course of our 30-year marriage. We've gotten ourselves in a, a, enough of a knot that we've had to seek out therapy. And I remember this one therapist said something that was so profound to me. She said, you know, when you get married, it's sort of like signing a contract. Um, Mm -hmm. It says, you know, getting married at the top and you sign it on the last page and it's blank in between because you don't exactly know what you're signing up for. And that's what marriage is. You have to figure it out day by day by day. And so, um, you can't do that without grappling. Mm-hmm. You can't do that without getting to know what each of your needs and wants are and communicating about them so that you figure out what your couple wants and needs are. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think there's a metaphor there. I think yeah. that there's, there's also, there's an indigenous proverb um, that says, I, I don't know where we're going. I've just agreed to go. Mm. And it's so, I love it. And Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King also has something about uh, the first step, even if you don't know. Do you know that quote? I can't recite it, but it's something I'm about- I'm not going to be able to recite it, but there's a number of quotes that really get us to the place where it's like, you just have to take the first step and that yeah, none so, of us are ready. No one's yeah. ever ready. And this so is you it. just have to do it. <laughs> faith, faith is the willingness to take the first step even when you don't know where it's going to lead. So, and this couldn't be more counter to whiteness because whiteness wants agendas and timelines and contracts, and it wants to lock us in to what we're, the goal we're setting and how we're going to get there. And in fact, that just, um, it just denies the humanity, the organicness of relationship. And I know, I know all aces, uh, what are you play? What's that word that you have that's about play, um, play space or? Say that one more. There's something about play. at all aces. You have something written right into the tenets of who you are as an organization, like something oh. about, about play. Oh, collective care? No, it may be, but there's the word play. I remember seeing the word play and going, oh, that's so, that's so Dr. Martin. I love that. It's just the creativeness. Yes. So, so when we lock ourselves into rigid timelines, and mm-hmm. I know we have to think about budgets, but uh, all this rigidity, mm-hmm. and we expect the process to be linear. Mm-hmm. We oh, we, playmakers. That's playmakers. Playmakers. Thank you. Rico threw us an assist. Thank you, sir. Yeah. So when I when I read that word playmakers, uh, when, you know, when you were designing all all your language um, in your organization, I th- I thought, well, that's such a great word because there should be a playfulness mm-hmm. to life. We human beings, we are creative, and there's great joy and play in creating, even around um, a chief resiliency officer, even around really really difficult mm-hmm. circumstances. Um, because when we bring a hundred percent of ourselves, then we are bringing our play and our creativity. And that's where the juice is, I think, in terms of solving problems, 
Um, and again, that, you know, it doesn't always look pretty. It, it can, there, that's why it's not linear. That's why it's not linear. Cause you yeah. go, whoop, and now we have to circle back and figure that piece out again. I thought we figured yeah. it out, but whoops, we have to do it again. Yes. I don't so, know how I got on that tangent. No, that was good. That was good. And actually where we have about um, just, just about five minutes left in our time together, time flies. Um, and so um, I wanted to make sure that we landed with um, clarity on action, right? Because oftentimes we have these conversations and we talk about the problems and the struggles and those pieces and then it's okay, but what do we do, right? So what is it um, that you would recommend? So the two parts, actually. What is it that you would recommend people do? And what have you been working on recently that you think will help people be able to take action? Uh, well, actually, one of the things I've been working on is, is I'm going to put out an announcement about it later today. It's the 21-day challenge that Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. and I started years ago, and now some other people have come on board. We've collaborated with this really cool company called Pro Habits. And um, it's going to be on my Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. I'll send out an email about it. It's this really great new challenge. And they deliver it to your inbox every day. And it's a way to do everything we've talked about. Um, increase your understanding of history. Um, do a lot of reflective thinking. Um, mm -hmm. Be pushed into places of cognitive dissonance and have to work through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one easy thing that people can do is just sign up for it. You don't have to, if, if I send it out, you can sign up any day. And once you start, you've got 21 days in a row to do it. Um, I think that people, one of the problems with uh, white communities is we often see ourselves as rugged individuals. And, and it's so important to, oh, that's a, actually a different one. Uh, yeah, I will put it on my website, I guess. I guess yeah. We'll, I listen we'll every share, day, but we'll make but, sure we share. Yeah, we'll share you want too. Um, because there there is already a twenty one day plan that lives on my website, but this is this is a little different in that it's a, a different content and it's delivered to your to your doorstep every day to your inbox. Um, I think getting together with other people, uh, whether that's an organization that's actively involved in some form of social racial justice, because it's all connected. You know, in your workplace, in your town, at your child's school, that's definitely important. But working with people, working in coalition, um, and yet um, I know I am sort of the poster child for just jumping into action. I tried to get to chapter three before I did chapter two. So um, that's where my white saviorism came in. It is really important to get to know ourselves better, and whether that's through um, a book that has nothing to do about racism, but is really pushing us to understand our own inner workings, uh, or it's a book about racism. I mean, if you're not already a lifelong learner, becoming a lifelong learner, committing to be a lifelong learner, I think that's what we can do. And just to be wary of what whiteness will encourage us. We don't have time to join another group. Um, this is too hard. Uh, I said something wrong. Now I wish I'd never, I'd never entered this conversation because now I feel like an idiot. Like all the things that make us mm -hmm. want to run, just know there you've been conditioned to want to run, and yeah. so it's up to you to condition yourself to say, "Oh no, you don't." When I feel the urge to run, I know exactly what you're up to, white supremacy. I'm yeah. going to stay in. Yes, and it's funny because that's a um, John Monahan from the team. Um, all aces who um, is behind the scenes. So right now behind the scenes, we have John Monahan, who is a retired police officer, police chief, specifically from New Hampshire, who is brilliantly um, uh, self-aware and um, uh, has, has been on his journey for social justice and racial equity long before um, lots of other people <laughs> uh, got on board um, and uh, or at least became even um, wanted to go down that rabbit hole um, or said they did. Um, we also have Rico Manalo behind the scenes and we have our digital strategy guru, uh, Miles Green. And Rico, um, 
uh, does a lot of work for intentionallyact.com and um, all aces on air that you're watching right now. So um, John just posted um, uh, this whole concept of interdependence. And I want to, we borrowed that language from Habits of Highly Effective People, right? Um, uh, Stephen Covey, who he, he, let's just say he was not writing about racism. However, if you read the book from that context, it actually is very, um, uh, very um, helpful. And so as we wrap up, and we think about what is it, what is the, what is the point, um, what, is, what should we do in order to stay in the struggle, right? How do we transition from act one to act two and not try to rush through it to get to three or just try to bypass it? And really there's no easy answer to that question. I wish there was an equation or something um, handy dandy that you could just whip out and it could be linear, but it's not. But I'd say the first piece is to, to is humility, which is how we started this conversation. This idea that none of us is perfect, that um, even as a person of color, as a black woman, as an African-American woman whose fam family has been here for generations, um, that I too um, have done a lot of work in order to, to start the process of, of healing myself from um, being infected with, white, with whiteness. Um, and so for me, um, I have to own the fact that I'm not perfect, even as a person of color who's on the receiving end of oppression, I, oppression is a two-way street. Um, and there are things that we can do as people of color, not only that's harmful to ourselves, but that continues the cycle of oppression, right? Which is these ideas that folks have associated with, um, kind of white supremacy, kind of the, 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 um, white supremacy culture is in us too. And so we have to be careful as people of color when we're in our own movement, trying to fight for our own liberation internally and in terms of um, in collectively when we're in group with each other, that we're not falling into the same traps of, of um, that white supremacy culture, right? Those things that are not actually helpful to us being able to accomplish the goals that we've set for ourselves the things that get in the way of our being able to be in true relationship with each other, to trust each other, to build um, capacity, um, to be able to um, lock arms with people who look like us and to be able to identify that there are also people who don't look like us who are willing to lock arms with us. And that's a struggle, right? That's a struggle to do. And it looks and feels different for all of us. There's no you know, my approach and my journey of how I deal with things is not the same for the next um, Black woman, right? There's no monolithic us. Um, but this idea of um, owning our power, we do have power. I know we've been told in social justice workshops that we don't have any power because we're people of color. And I know what they mean, but it, it subconsciously communicates to us that we don't have a role in this fight. Um, and so, um, except to make white people do stuff. <laughs> um, and so, um, so I challenge us um, to do, to also do the hard work of healing and um, getting some of the whiteness out of us so that we can get further in our own um, development, but also in our collective struggle um, within um, uh, our communities and um, in, in, for lack of better terms, in terms of accomplices right, who want to lock arms with us in our struggle. Um, so thank you, Debbie Irving. I appreciate you. It is such a pleasure to see your face. I'm, I've, I always oh, great to see you. And we're going to reconnect and figure out how we can um, be supportive of one another because it's easy with our path so full of stuff mm -hmm. to, um, to get so far down a path that it mm -hmm. makes it hard to collaborate. So we're going to follow up and make sure that we do that. Thank you so much for this invitation and this conversation and being you and seeing me. I love all of it. I love you. Oh, thank you. I love you too. And I, we, we also appreciate all of you. So we're sending lots of love, hope, and action to each and every one of you. And we hope that you will continue to join us for more conversations and talks like this. So thank you all for taking time on your day off to be with us. And we hope that you continue to join us for 
experiences where we continue to challenge each other with love and humility and grace. You've been listening to Intentionally Act Live from our website, intentionallyact.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Submit your stories and questions for future episodes by emailing us at info at Until next time.